This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is In the Workplace on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here are Professor Peter Capelli and Dan O'Mara. Hey folks, welcome back. You're in the workplace. I'm Peter Capelli. I'm Dan O'Mara. I'm a professor of management here at the Wharton School. And I'm adjunct faculty at the Wharton School and a partner at Ogletree Deacons in Philadelphia. And this is a show where we talk about things going on in the workplace. Uh, things at work, things we going on. We make human resources fun. Dan believes that's true. Yes. Uh, we've been away for a little bit here. And uh, Dan's back from the spot. Looking, yes. looking yes. great, I must say. And I have been in... Barcelona, or as we more appropriately say, Barcelona. Barcelona. Uh, they reminded me at some length that I was not in Spain. I was in Catalonia, which is a topic of some debate. As you know, the day before I got there, 300,000 people were in the streets protesting and all kinds of excitement going on. The thing when you were in a foreign country and protests are going on is you don't know what's happening unless you speak the language well. Yes. And I don't. So. You know, I was, I may have told you this. I was in uh, Cairo in Egypt when the Arab Spring started. Oh, did uh, not that, know that. That week when the Tariq Square stuff was happening and things. And um, we had no idea it was happening because obviously they weren't reporting it in the papers and no. it wasn't on TV, state-controlled media and stuff. And you weren't on Facebook. So and I wasn't on Facebook. couldn't there for the ultimate right. source there, of truth. There you go. So it wasn't until I left the country that we discovered what was going on. Now, looking wow. back, you can see strange things that appeared that make sense, like little groups of people huddling all the time and talking, you know, the last yeah. couple of days or so. Uh, but they weren't talking to us, so... We didn't know. See, Peter's very intellectual. He goes over to Barcelona mm. and talks about the protests. I went to Barcelona once for a Bruce Springsteen concert. Did you go? Yeah, really? up in the Olympic Just Stadium up on the hill. No kidding. Well, we wanted, mm. to, wanted to go on a trip, a bunch of guys. Mm. Or we go West Coast or we could go to Europe. Same di- difference you know, in terms of uh, yeah. length of time. Mm. Well, if you're going to go to Europe, why not go to a Bruce Springsteen concert? Yeah. And was it fabulous? It was fabulous. Played three solid hours. Oh, wow. That's yeah. apparently one of his favorite places to play, I guess. And yeah, he, he puts on a good show. Yeah, and they were a fun crowd. And, and actually, it was right around my 50th birthday, so mm. almost like a 50th birthday present to me, uh, the European crowd sang Born in the USA, oh. and they knew every in English. Uh-huh. They knew every word. I didn't necessarily know every word. <laughs> <laughs> Did you stand but up and yell, I am... I was. No, I think I, I think I got American stamped right on my forehead wherever I go. Like, yeah, they I just look at me. Right. You know, they're like, right. yeah, don't don't even try to pretend to be one of yeah, us. Right. I don't. Right. No, I think that's true. The baseball caps, the sneakers, that all kind of yeah. uh, gets in the way. So, so there you go. Don't We're, we have a fabulous show today? I, I think fabulous is the word. Um, that we should use over and over and over mm-hmm. for our show today. We're going to talk about organizational psychology and problems of leaders in organizations. We're going to talk about Silicon Valley and some of the nasty stuff that's been going on in, there. In an hour, we're going to have Emily Chang, yes, author of Brotopia. Who will talk about that. And we're going to talk about making baseball bats. With David Chandler, founder of Chandler Bats. Which uh, is a very different kind of occupation. Mm-hmm. And then Dan and I are going to talk about our usual fabulous list of things that are going on in yes. the workplace and in public policy, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to start out talking about organizational psychology, what happens uh, inside businesses, particularly to the leaders and the executives who run companies. And with us to help us guide this through is 
Patricia Thompson, Ph.D., who is a corporate psychologist and management consultant in her company, Silver Lining Psychology. Uh, Patricia, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Our pleasure. So let me tell you, let me ask you, rather, how did you get interested in doing this as a kid, you know, when people are saying, I want to be a fireman, and did you say, I want to be a corporate psychologist? How did this develop interest develop with you? I actually entirely fell into it. Um, You know, my PhD is in clinical psychology, and I was actually doing my postdoc at a hospital, so working with people with serious and persistent mental illness. And um, when we were there as part of our training, we had different people coming in telling us what we could do with our degrees. And someone came in and told us about consulting, and it sounded really appealing at the time, both just because it was working with a different population that was higher functioning, um, (laughs) but also, you know, the opportunity to work with really driven and motivated people. And so that was really what got me interested in it. So it wasn't when I was eight years old. It was when I was much older than that that I first got interested in the field. You know, I think that's true for everybody, but uh, sometimes we feel we have to lie and make up a story about our (laughs) career. It all made sense. It was all planned. But in fact, it's typically serendipity for for most everybody. Uh, Let me ask first about the problems that you saw trained as a clinical psychologist. And, of course, this is a a job that is um, not uncommon, right? There's lots of folks who do this kind of work. Um, In terms of the training that you had, which is, I guess, was mainly focused Mm -hmm. on mental illness, right? Uh, One of the things that has always struck me is the discussion about the number of people um, who have mental illnesses and the number of people, much greater number, who have borderline mental illnesses or uh, of various kinds of disabilities. In the work you do inside of organizations, do you see that? Um, do you see that being part of the problem that many corporations and organizations have, that the folks at the top have got problems? Some of them are clinically mental health problems. Is that a common problem? Yeah, I wouldn't say that you get a lot of, for example, serious mental illness, because I would Mm. think that would usually rule you out from getting to the top of the organization. But you do see things like, you know, depression or anxiety or, you know, having difficulty managing stress, those sorts of things. And so the same sorts of tools that I would have learned about in graduate school in terms of assessing personality, you know, building rapport, coming up with an action plan to help someone to accomplish their goals, those all definitely come into play, even with a very high-functioning population. Oh, no kidding. That's interesting. So somebody who is struggling to just function in society, um, the executive skills and things you're trying to get them to master, those are similar problems, huh? can be. I mean, yeah. very often with high achievers, they'll have a lot of pressure that they put on themselves, some okay. of them do. Yep. Um, yep. You know, interestingly, I actually did uh, an internship for a year at the University of Pennsylvania working with high-functioning students. Heard of that who, place. you know, put a lot of pressure on themselves to succeed. Mm-hmm. And, and they do. you know, with that pressure can come a lot of anxiety and burnout and different less positive aspects. And so you also see that in the high-functioning populations in, you know, uh, organizations. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, Dan, by the way, was a, uh, I was a University student, of Pennsylvania yeah. student, and I seem to be functioning pretty highly at the moment. Well, yeah, <laughs> but also I was here as a grad student in the yeah. law and MBA program, so right. basically the pressure is off me the day I got admitted to those programs. Mm, the, under, the undergraduates mm. are the ones that yeah. are under a lot right. of pressure, perhaps by their families, perhaps sure. by themselves, yeah. and are just a bundle of nerves. But yeah. go ahead. So one of the things that we, we hear a lot about, Patricia, these days is narcissism. In uh, leadership positions, did you do you see a lot of that? Is that a common characteristic of the folks who are at the very top of these organizations? Does it does it actually help them get to those positions? What's your sense about that? Yeah, you know, my sense is that you see some of that, but I would say, you know, my experience is that it's more the exception to the rule. Um, you know, I think you see a certain level of drive, obviously a level of competitiveness and wanting to do well. But when you get to the level of narcissism, you know, I would say there aren't as many people who have that. When they are in there, you definitely have a lot of problems as a result of it. And then you have the issue of, you know, is the organization actually going to do something about it? Or are they going to put more of an emphasis on perhaps that person's performance as an individual Mm -hmm. as opposed to their performance as a leader. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those sorts of trade-offs are ones that a lot of organizations struggle with. Sure. Well, let me ask you about that since you're on it. Um, How do uh, organizations deal with problems in their leaders? Uh, Because it's a really tricky exercise, right? I mean, the question of what is the organization, who runs the organization, board of directors, presumably, uh, ultimately, uh, CEOs, though, often kind of dominate the boards of directors. When you get called in to help senior folks, like CEO, let's say, what causes you to be brought in? What's what's common? Yeah, so typically it's actually a happier situation than having a problem leader. Um, very often it's just wanting to develop a leader to help them to be more effective. Okay, And so they might not necessarily have an inherent identified problem, but, you know, as with everyone, we all have areas for growth, and so it might be just yep. helping them in a specific area, okay. whether it's, you know, helping them to become more emotionally intelligent or effective mm-hmm. as they're interacting with people mm-hmm. or helping them with leadership development or to be more assertive or, you know, whatever their developmental area is. But yep. typically it's actually a, a positive time when I'm brought in. Yeah. Uh, although, Patricia, let me say it's boring radio if everybody is positive. <laughs> <laughs> that is, yeah. you got healthy people. You're just trying to That's make them why I'm here. healthier. Yeah, Dan's here to anchor the other end of the distribution. Um, it's, uh, I think people are more interested in uh, the problems um, that uh, folks at the, the top have. Uh, but before we get to, we're going to ask you about the problems they have at the top. What would you say are the strengths of uh, the folks that are running these big organizations or, or just in general? How do they seem different than your average person? The folks who are leading big organizations, what's different about them? Well, as you might expect, they're typically more driven um, than average and comfortable being dominant. When you look at the personality testing of people who make it all the way to the top, they tend to score much higher in dominance than with the average person. And, you know, in general, are more comfortable kind of putting themselves out there making decisions that are unpopular in general, although I will say that if they're not, there are definitely some problems with that. You know, they also tend to be pretty bright, obviously, to be able to Mm -hmm. be at the top of an organization. You have to be intelligent. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you really do get a variety of factors in terms of 
where they're not as strong, depending on both the leader as well as the organization. And so that's why, you know, me coming in to help to develop them on those areas where they're not as strong becomes so important. Do you think we're doing something funny uh, with leaders? Because as you describe it, right, we're basically taking people who are great individual performers, competitive people who are individually dominant, and then we're trying to get them to run organizations where you're basically trying to, you're running an organization, you're not an individual contributor, you have to function through other people. And we take great individual contributors and we put them into positions where they've got to manage others. Um, Is that a weird thing, do you think? Are we doing that Uh, correctly? If you could pick any process for putting people into leadership roles, what would it be? Yeah, so I I do think that happens a lot. And I think that where leaders tend to err is that they're much more focused on the task and the execution and tend to be less focused on the interpersonal side, the soft skills, um, building the culture. That's usually, you know, what I find in my work with leaders. And I do think the process is typically, as you mentioned, looking for who's doing well as an individual not looking as much at how they are interpersonally, although, I mean, again, it varies, but, you know, when, when uh, companies make mistakes, it's not thinking about the person's emotional intelligence or how well they do in terms of regulating their emotions or managing their drive. And so a lot of times the things that might look like strengths for an individual contributor can become overplayed into weaknesses when they're actually leading other people. Yep. You know, it's good to get stuff done and to have a high sense of urgency, but if you're driving your people into the ground or not focused on their morale, then obviously that's not as attractive in a, in a leader. Right. And so I typically find that it's the soft skills and the emotional intelligence that differentiate, you know, the okay leaders from the phenomenal leaders. Mm-hmm. Folks, we're talking to Patricia Thompson, who's a corporate psychologist at Silver Lining psychology about the kinds of problems she sees or the kinds of issues she sees among executives and leaders uh, who run the big organizations in the U.S. So in terms of the gaps uh, that people would typically have who are running these organizations when they've got gaps, what are the most common ones, the things that they got to work on the most when they move from being an individual contributor to somebody who's got to lead? Yeah, like I said, I think the big one is emotional intelligence, just understanding culture, understanding people. A lot of times, you know, what I find with leaders is that they're not always the greatest coaches. And, you know, as a leader, you've got to be someone who's focused on developing talent. And so it's not just about assigning tasks and getting it done. It's also thinking about how do I help this individual with his or her career How do I identify what this person needs to work on to be able to be ready for the next level? Um, And for a lot of them, they're just not, again, thinking about those sorts of soft skills. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say the other thing that is related to being an effective leader is being able to keep up with your workload and just the complexity of it all. Um, And a typical thing that I find leaders struggle with is just feeling like they have so much work to do that they're getting pulled in all directions and just kind of keeping up with it, um, as opposed to being reactive, but kind of approaching it in an intentional way, mm-hmm. is something that a lot of them struggle with. Like, just how do I deal with all of this? Well, let's uh, let's pause on that one for a minute, because it's a big question, and I'm going to get Dan to, to weigh in on his sure. view on this, too. I'll tell you, here's my uh, sense as to what the problem is with those folks who are drowning. They don't delegate. Mm-hmm. They don't want to delegate stuff. They want to control it all themselves. What do you think? 
I think that's right. They may respond by saying, I wish I had someone I could delegate to. Yeah. We're either short-staffed or I've got incapable people working for me and I'm not allowed to replace them. Right. Uh, do you think they're right about that, or do you think that— It's um, situation-dependent. Sometimes they are. It's kind of—well, it's kind of an impossible uh, situation, right, if you feel, yeah. gosh, I am so much better than everybody else, and let's say they are. Um, so i got to do everything myself. Well, you're not going to do it well if you're doing everything yourself, yeah. and you're going to kill yourself. So uh, what do we got to do? How about you make your current employees better? That doesn't seem to factor in very often, you know? Yeah, it's something you can say in a, as if you're a professor in MBA school. Yeah. Oh, Dan believes in – oh, get this, Patricia. Dan believes, I think, in dispositions. Good employee, bad employee. Uh-huh. Yeah? Yeah, it's a bit of an overstatement, but yeah, it is. Uh, or okay. I'm just saying there's some employees who are just – it's a it's a bad fit for their job skills or their, their uh, approach, or they just aren't able to do the job. And okay. you can train them, train them, retrain them, and then train them again – and for one reason or another, they're not going to be able to do the job effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you're right. I don't believe that. Patricia, what do you, what's your sense? <laughs> um, so I think it's a bit more nuanced than that. I mean, I do agree that sometimes people are put into positions for which it's just too much of a gap from where they are already. And so, you know, you could do whatever amount of development that you want, and they're just not going to be able to meet the demands of the position. Yeah. But I also think in a lot of cases, um, people will kind of, rule someone out too quickly before actually taking the effort yeah. to develop yeah. them. Right. And so in a lot of cases when I have leaders saying that they don't have anyone to delegate to, I always ask them, well, what are you doing to train people up? Are yeah. you delegating and mm -hmm. kind of coaching them along so that they can learn the skills that they're going to need to be successful? Because right. if you're not, then you're basically setting yourself up for this situation <laughs> for as long as you have this team of people. Right. I think... Um People often have, who are put into these leadership roles, don't know how to develop talent, right? So I've got somebody who's not performing well. What are my options? Well, I can fire them. I understand how to do that. Or I could try to make them better. How do I do that? I don't know how to do that. So uh, we end up, particularly in the U.S., because it's much easier to do, of saying, get rid of them, bring in somebody else. Um, because I think often people don't know how to improve the performance of their employees. <clears throat> they don't know how to motivate people, and uh, they don't know how to develop skills and competencies. And I'd say motivate is the bigger thing than than skills and competencies. So, that, so they don't know they don't know what to do, you know. Uh, but Patricia, what do you, what do you think? Is that um, in terms of the problems that people as leaders have when they look at their employees and say, uh, "This person's not performing well enough. What do I do? What do you think they go to?" Yeah, I agree. I think um, they might recognize that there's a problem, but a lot of them are unsure as to what to do about the problem. And I think in general, like when I talk about that gap or the problem, it's the soft skills. It's knowing how to deal with people, how to think of someone's in, um, psychological makeup, for yeah. example, yeah. how to use that psychological makeup of each individual person to motivate them uniquely, to think about what they need to be more effective. And I mean, I think a lot of that is less tangible than, you know, going to a spreadsheet and, you know, being like a lot of the things that people get in, in sure. uh, business school is yeah, very right. tangible. And right. so some of the soft skill stuff, I think, for people is more uh, confusing just because they haven't had the training to do it or the practice. Yeah. And so they'll know what needs to happen, but they don't know how it needs to happen. And I think, you know, having more training and coaching would be something that would benefit a lot of organizations. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, having 
evidence about how it works and why it works would be the the place to start. You know, I think historically, you think about the arc of um, corporations and the arc of management, the rise of engineers uh, in leadership positions didn't start till after World War II. And uh, the reason for that is engineering became much more sophisticated and companies became more complex and manufacturing became maybe even a bigger deal in the U.S. as we were kind of manufacturing for the world. You know, after World War II, there were only two industrial countries in the world that had their infrastructure intact, and that was the U.S. and Sweden. Every place else of any kind of manufacturing all bombed country out. were bombed out, right? So we were all of a sudden the big leader. And, you know, engineers are maybe by disposition self-selected, but certainly trained in a particular rational approach to all decisions, right? And there's a great uh, quote I remember from Kurt Vonnegut, um, who, you know, worked for General Electric. Not Did not well know known. that. And he actually worked in the PR department of General Electric. And in one of his books, he's describing, you know, writing from a perspective mm -hmm. of an engineer about the problem in trying to get something done. And he said, well, this is a perfect system if it weren't for the damn people. Right? <laughs> and uh, I think that is what's kept Patricia and her colleagues in business <laughs> for the last uh, 60 or 70 years is we have people who are trained and socialized into a model of how organizations work, and particularly how people work, which is a hyper-rational model, which doesn't conform well to reality. It's a triumph of theory over reality, right? And trying to explain to these folks how normal people function is a big uh, is a big part of the of the job. So, Patricia, let me ask you: if you could have your magic wands in these organizations to try to make leaders better, what would you do? Um, I think the first thing would just be to give them more training, again, on the soft skills and emotional intelligence, just because I really do think that that makes a huge difference in terms of how effective you are as a leader. Okay. You know, we already know that they have the hard technical skills to be a leader and to yep. understand the subject matter. But like you said, it's really the people issues that they need to learn how to manage. And so, do you think, you know, can I, can, more, yeah, sorry. so can I just stop you on that? Do you think yeah. they, the issue is they don't know how or they don't think that they should you know they don't see the need or do you think that they see the need and they just don't know how to do it i think it's both i mean i do think that there are some that don't value the interpersonal side kind of like you, you said with the quote where you know it's seen as more of a hassle to have to deal with that touchy-feely stuff so there definitely are those i do think there are others who are more well-intentioned and would like to be able to better motivate and inspire their people but they might not feel like they know how to do things like give feedback effectively or manage conflict or, you know, deal with someone who seems to be having, you know, more emotional difficulties or mm -hmm. seems disengaged. Um, those feel, again, like to some, just out of their realm of what they've been exposed to and to what they, how they know how to do. And so I think it's both, number one, not valuing okay. it, but also you could value it but just not know what to do. So even in the course of, of your career, which you're not as old as either of the distinguished people on the other end of the line here, um, there's been, the big change has been the rise of women in leadership roles and, you know, not as many as there should be, but way more than there were before. When you work with women executives, what are the challenges that um, 
that you see with them or the help that, that they ask for or you think they need that's different than the male executives? Um, you know, I think the big one for them is how to be taken appropriately seriously. I think how to manage being assertive but not coming across in a way that's negative, okay. um, feeling like they might behave in ways that are similar to their male counterparts, but when they speak in the same way, it's being held against them. And so it's really a double-edged sword of wanting to be appropriately assertive, but having to also walk the fine line of not being you know, misperceived or penalized for being appropriately assertive. I've worked with you know, several women who were seen as too aggressive, mm. and if you were to mm-hmm. compare them to their peers they were, you know, behaving similarly. But okay. because they were women, they were penalized. Uh, do you think that um, the male uh, requirements for male executives have changed? Do you think that it's um, what's expected of them is different than, say, when you began your career? Um, I do think just in general there's more of a focus on culture. Um, we know, you know, there's an increasing body of research like positive psychology about the positive impacts of focusing on culture, making sure that people feel engaged at work, um, and recognizing that, you know, the employer plays a role in that. I think the rise of the millennial in the workplace, you know, they're asking for different things and they're willing to switch jobs if they feel like they're not getting everything that they need in their organization. And so I think people are being forced to have to pay more attention to aspects of culture, you know, even if they don't fully believe in it, just so that they can retain employees. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Patricia, thanks very much for being with us. Dr. Patricia Thompson, corporate psychologist and management consultant. Her company is Silver Lining Psychology. And we've been talking about uh, the role of leaders and what they need in terms of help to get better. Dan, let me ask you this one. We were just talking about the issue of assertiveness in the workplace. Sure. Now, my sense was that uh, when we first began our career, for example, Um, If you were a boss who yelled at people, this was perfectly normal and acceptable. Is that right? What do you think? It's more common then, but no. I remember a jerk was a jerk even back then. Even back then? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Do you think it's less common now, though? Less acceptable, less common? Yeah, less common. I think it's way less acceptable now. I think it's way less acceptable. I think, I, I, I think bosses may be under more pressure now than yeah, they were back that, then. That could you know, be back then you sure. sort of had the job. There yeah. wasn't the P&L pressures there yeah. might be now. Yeah. I think that's right. But I think um, there's more more pushback, as they say, towards highly un, un, unprofessional behaviors yeah. in the workplace. Yeah. I think losing your temper is a big no-no in the workplace these days. I yeah. think it's a sign of uh, weakness uh, when people do it. And uh, it's, I think, getting angry at your employees is really seen as, uh, as a bad thing. Or at least showing your anger. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Manifesting your anger. I think that's right. Yeah. And I think this, this issue of leadership, of course, we have a whole leadership show, which follows our fabulous show um, and comes on at 7 o'clock. Uh, but I think the issue of, of what constitutes good leadership is a puzzle still, right, in the sense that um, not that we couldn't say what's a good leader, but I don't think people in organizations necessarily know what that looks like. You know, they know it when they see it, mm-hmm. but if you ask them to describe it, um, you wouldn't necessarily get a common answer. And I think the uh, process through which you do it, I think there's a perception that there are 
lots of different ways to succeed. I'm not sure that that's true, um, that there are lots of different ways. I mean, there may be lots of different ways to get particular things done. But I think in the long run, being an effective leader, I don't think there's a million different ways to do it. You know, I don't think you can do it by screaming at your employees, for example. Let me ask this. It used to be the case leadership was defined to be the ability to get people to do things you want them to do without mm. coercive authority. Mm. Sort of motivational yeah. leadership rather than this overall uh, delivering good. results type thing. Because delivering results is yeah. going to come with a blend of course of authority as well as motivational skills. I think that's right. Um, You know, you want to get people to follow you, right? And that seems to be the the story. And I think, um, you know, I think one of the challenges that we've had now in organization life is that in order to become leaner and maybe a lot more cost effective, we've gotten rid of the development experiences that taught people how to be leaders, right? Mm -hmm. There used to be lots of assignments that were shadowing for executives, right? Yeah. Deputy, fill in the blank, was a very common job. And People would have job titles that began with the word assistant. Yes, right. <laughs> and so your job, right. And your job <laughs> then was- Then they had layoffs in the 80s where like, if you got the word assistant in your dead. job title, bye. Yeah, yeah, you're gone. And deputy was, uh, forget it. Yeah. And the government, still a lot of deputies, but the idea then was that you were the, you know, the director in waiting. You know, mm-hmm. that this was a job title for people who were going to be director and that you basically shadowed the person for a while. It's like a professional football player who was redshirted for a season, right? Mm-hmm. You're on the bench. You're watching the game. College and, football was redshirted. Yeah. You know, redshirt and pose. Yeah, but they okay. do the same thing. But what's the name exactly. for it? Uh, backup. Mm, no, if you're really just sitting Taxi and squad? watching. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it has a good name. So that's why I call it redshirt. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, in professional sports, we know what it looks like. And we used to know what it looked like in the corporate world, but we got rid of those. Mm-hmm. And we got rid of most development programs, too. And so we actually regressed, I think, quite a bit. And I think this issue of appointing the best individual contributors to leadership positions, even though the skills of being an individual contributor and running a group are quite different, and in some ways they're kind of in competition with each other, you know? Uh, The kinds of things that an individual leader would do, looking out for yourself, being competitive, not going to work well when you are trying to lead other people. It's almost the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. And yet we do a lot of that stuff. And that makes uh, great opportunities for organizational psychologists to come in and help straighten this exactly. out. We are, it stimulates the economy. We are going to take a break now and ponder our own leadership styles. We're going to come back in just a minute and we're going to talk about Silicon Valley. No. No, we're, we're going to talk, talk about, about what we want to talk oh, about right. in the next half hour, riveting stuff, and there I'll be go. leading the way. There you go. So that's why we'll be on schedule. We're going to take a break right now. I'll be right back with you in a minute. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 